Hello and welcome to another episode of the Ghost Squared podcast. I'm James, your host, and today we have a slightly different show. We actually are bringing you a recording from our recent London SaaS event where we bring together the community in London uh, involved in software as a service. Uh, it's a really fun event. We try and throw them every couple of months and uh, we're joined by Rich Waldron, who's the CEO of Tray.io, another London-based software as a service company. In this uh, episode, we'll share the little like fireside chat that Rich and I did, where we talked about how he's been building Tray uh, with his team, and it's made for a really good, uh, really good show. So we we hope you enjoy it. Thanks. Okay, uh, I'll get a little bit about Trey out of the way. Uh, I'm Rich Waldron, the co-founder and CEO. Uh, there are two other founders at Trey. We started in 2012, so we're very much a overnight success. Um, <laughs> so our kind of mission is to empower what we call the automated organization, and that is taking advantage of APIs and the tooling that exists in the world now to drive automation throughout every team in a company. If you take a look at what someone like Amazon is doing, where you do a one-click order, it gets picked by a robot, pushed onto a machine, and, and sent off to you as a customer, they've, they've heavily sort of le leveraged automation to give them a competitive advantage. We see this as, as the kind of future of how companies are going to be run. How we do this? Uh, we have a software as a service, unsurprisingly, platform uh, that enables you to effectively build connectivity between any application that has an API. So that could be private or public. We have a whole load of different programming functions that exist in between, and you can build extremely complex logic which will carry out a series of actions depending on what it is you're trying to achieve. These will often be things like um, RFP processes or lead scoring models or whatever it is that you're trying to solve in a specific part of a business. Um, you would use our tool to build the information between those different services. Companies that use us are um, some of the above, and uh, I can go a little bit into that about kind of how we, where we started out and, and, and where we've ended up and the sort of companies that we're, we're now starting to serve. So, that's enough of sort of my um, secret pitch to get you all to go on our website. So I'll hand over to James, who I think is going to grill me in some way. I will try my best. Thank you, Rich. Uh, I know you just got back from San Francisco on a busy, busy trip. So thank you for being with us. Um, so I guess one thing to kick off. Trey has been around. You said 2012, right? Yeah. Talk us through. And, and just to clarify, like Trey's now doing very well. You've raised, what, like seven and a bit million, I yeah, think, in so, USD. Yeah, like that, yeah. And you got some amazing customers. Um, how did this start? Like, what was Trey originally? And, and what's that journey been like from then until till now? Yeah, so we started out um, uh, much younger and, and slightly naiver, um, working on an email product. And our, our idea was that <laughs> We were significantly more popular at the time. Uh, we were getting kind of bombarded with email. And we felt that there'd be a better way to kind of meter it before it hit our inbox. So we built a sort of rules engine that um, was built into IMAP. And you'd be able to connect to all these different API providers and basically say, you know, when this email comes in and this condition is met on this service, then carry out this action. That was very much our early premise. So we wanted it to effectively feel very seamless. It should sort of alter your email before it hits your client. We didn't want to build a client because um, you know that's a that's a pain. And we wanted it so that you could effectively roll out this sort of invisible layer before your email hit your inbox. So 
that's where we started out. Uh, we were on a incubator called Springboard, which got eaten up by Techstars somewhere along the way, um, way back when in, in 2012. We've been working on the product for about a year or so. Um, and uh, we ended up moving to San Francisco and, and joining the AngelPad cohort. So that was the sort of early start of Trey. Um, turns out we weren't actually that fussed by email as a service and we weren't actually getting that many email. So when we were over in San Francisco, we spent most of our time trying to figure out how we were going to grow this product. Um, we'd had a lot of sign-ups, a lot of interest. We were trying to figure out how we were going to scale it and, and, and kind of raise some money to build out the team. And um, I'm a pretty lousy engineer that was much more product focused. Um, our CTO was fed up with the terrible scripts that I was writing to try and build automation around our product. So it'd be things like, um, has an investor signed up to this that has ever invested in an infrastructure uh, product in the last two years that isn't a competitor. And that would be loop through MailChimp, compare against AngelList, and a series of other kind of trifectas outside of that. Um, ultimately, to sort of save his own hassle, um, Ali, my co-founder, basically took the platform that we'd built, made email a module, and enabled me to effectively start kind of jabbing together these different services and spinning them up into the architecture we'd already spent time developing. Uh, it dawned on us that this was a much more sort of interesting and, and powerful path that we could go down because it enabled us to very quickly answer questions about our business, but also carry out the tasks of team members that we hadn't yet hired or couldn't afford to. So that was sort of the, the early soiree into, into the automation space. Um, this was sort of 2013. We were living in an apartment in Hayes Valley, um, uh, which would now probably cost you about $10,000 a month. Um, <laughs> back then, it was, it was slightly cheaper, and there was a very good kebab shop just around the corner, which <laughs> made us feel at home. Um, uh, off the back of that, we felt that this would be a fairly easy project to turn around. Um, Oh, how wrong we were. Um, uh, we'd already been through a pretty laborious process to, to fund the company. Um, involved me selling Wellington boots on eBay and doing a delivery run twice a week for six months. Um, that got us our first, I guess, eight months of capital. Uh, we'd built a web agency before, which had kind of self-funded us before that point. So we sort of felt the pressure of being in, in San Francisco. Um, we had this big demo day coming up, and we, and we you know, built a sort of fairly interesting product, yet we weren't far along enough for, for this to be of any real interest. Um, somewhere around that time, we realized that in order for this to be successful, it had to be as flexible and as powerful as possible. So the, the kind of integrations that we were trying to build um, needed to be able to handle very large data throughput. You needed to be able to build any kind of connectivity you wanted. The bottleneck couldn't be the services that we didn't support. So from day one, our kind of remit was this needs to be you know, something that a engineer initially could pick up and there wouldn't be any restriction on what they'd be able to do that required us to have to do any work. So we, uh, we were able to get a POC with a bank. Um, don't ask me how that happened. Um, and we built out a very heavy Salesforce integration on our framework. That got us uh, in front of some VCs, and we were able to raise our first bit of capital, um, which was $2 million in 2014. Uh, we hired out a fairly small engineering team and just focused entirely on product for the best part of a year and a half, which pretty much goes against every bit of startup advice you'll ever be given, which you, know, you should be speaking to customers, you should be out going to market. We were product obsessed, and we, we felt that we had to deliver a platform that could pretty much scale to anything. Um, 
the, the knock-on of doing that meant that we'd built up a lot of resilience throughout this process and we kind of felt fairly indestructive at this point. You know, we'd been um, close to bankruptcy quite a few times. We'd racked up a fair amount of debt ourselves internally and we were kind of determined that we'd get to a certain point where this thing could be scalable. So once we built this, this product out, um, we, through some great channel partnerships, started to build up an interesting customer base. And we were largely solving um, integration problems for providers that were trying to sell to third parties. Typically, uh, somebody wants to come and buy Zendesk product and pay them a couple of hundred thousand dollars a year. It usually means that a heavy Salesforce integration or something of that ilk needs to be developed. They ended up building that out on our platform and scaling it up. Um, that enabled us to get to market quite quickly. Uh, we were able to prove that we could handle the kind of challenges that, that we knew it had existed prior to this. And uh, we raised uh, $5 million in the summer of 2016. Uh, this is the point where everything became sort of very interesting because we now had the weight of having raised almost $8 million on our back, um, really only being in the market for, I guess, three to six months and having invested to date most of our capital into really you know, getting the right product. Um, we hired Chris, who sat in the, in the front row now, um, who, who, who came on board and you know, the, the next, I guess, 12 months were pretty extraordinary. Um, uh, we were able to build an interesting kind of go-to-market model. We found um, our opportunity in the mid-market enterprise space. We did everything in the playbook about kind of pushing upstream, and we were able to you know, finally see this thing get into the hands of the, of the right provider. So I guess the summary is um, we weren't particularly smart for a very long time, but we stuck at it and kind of figured out what it was going to be to kind of unlock the growth at the right time. And you know, that took you know, the best part of, I guess, Four and a half years. Slow and steady wins the race. Amazing. That's a pretty interesting story. I feel like we want to dig into that a bit more. I'm sure people have questions off the back of that alone. But um, it'd be interesting to hear how your role has changed then, Rich. Like, it sounds like you were at one point building stuff yourself and doing all that. Do you still find yourself using Trey every day? Like what does an average yeah. day for Trey for, for Rich look like these days? Yeah, so um, <laughs> it's lucky our CTO isn't here because he'd be giving me daggers right now. Um, <laughs> early on and really through the kind of early majority, I, I was mainly in a kind of product role. So um, working very closely with Ali, our CTO, um, you know, we were, as I said, obsessed on the, on the product side. Dominic, our third co-founder, was the one that was going out and bringing together user groups and getting them in front of us. So really for the, for the best part, until we started hiring a, a technical team, I was very hands-on on, on product. That was probably 80, 90% of, of what I was doing. Um, that, quickly shifted to fundraising, which then became sort of 70% of my life for the various failed trifectas that we went through. And we probably failed at that pretty significantly <coughs> three times in the first three years. I reckon I pitched probably 150 different investors. Um, and we got used to, hey, you're a very smart team, but I don't think this is going to be right for us right now. Um, uh, how that sort of evolved, so um, one of the talks earlier I think did a really great job of talking about constructing a team and building in culture and, and kind of how, uh, why that's so important and we were very, very focused on, on the same challenges. Um, I went from being kind of very product oriented to thinking about how we were going to hire in a team and get that, that culture fit right. Um, as we started to scale up, we looked at opening a San Francisco office, which we did a year or so ago. My, 
co-founder Dominic moved over, and we started to grow that team very quickly. And my, my I guess, role evolved very fast from being you know, down in the trenches working specifically on product to thinking slightly more about the strategic side of what we were doing and how we were going to onboard new people to being almost a full-time recruiter. And now, I guess, I'm a balance of somewhere between a recruiter and, and you know, trying to keep everybody happy and, and on the right map for, for where we're heading next. So it's definitely been a kind of sharp path for, for me to go through and, and one that I've really enjoyed, especially now we have such a great kind of large team and we're dealing with customers all the time. So um, it's, been, it's been fun to start to put my product hat back on and, and think about you know, where, the, where the product's going in the future. Cool. So two offices at the moment, maybe more <laughs> yeah. at some point. Uh, what's it like having a US and a UK side and like, how does that work? Like, is there a conflict? Well, talk us through the challenges of going from one, everyone being in nice little cushy London Shoreditch yep. space to. Yeah, so um, London is our engineering hub. And you know, we are obviously all kind of British and, and London is at heart. Um, we recognize the amazing engineering talent that exists here. And we find it a huge competitive advantage that we can onboard people from the local area. Yeah, get them involved in our project and, 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 and hopefully provide a really exciting career. Um, what's ultimately happened by having two offices is, is kind of, initially I was a bit nervous about it. How it's played out, I think I'm, I'm currently really happy with because we found your engineering team and your go-to-market team have very different cultures. Um, the way that they approach the work that they need to do, the momentum that needs to be built at certain times. Um, the go-to-market office can be pretty loud, you know, uh, a lot of action going down, um, people scrabbling around to get deals done or, or work on specific campaigns, whereas the engineering team is, uh, I guess, has a slightly more steady momentum. Uh, it enables us to have a kind of quieter space and work in a slightly different manner. And the, the cultures of those different teams actually work um, really well being in independent locations. I think one of the challenges that we have is how we keep the cohesiveness of the company culture itself between the two. Um, we do a lot of flying back and forth, as uh, Chris will attest to, um, and, and making sure that people kind of not just who specifically need to be in a certain area because there's a, a, a task at hand, but also for kind of engaging and, and, and building out relationships with other team members. Um, everything you've read about, I guess, remote work um, plays true here. Jumping on a video call is the absolute most important thing you can do at any one point. Slack is where things get derailed very quickly. Um, the majority of our conversations do happen there, but as soon as it, it, it needs it, you know, we jump on a call and, and get face to face. So um, it definitely has been a bit of a challenge, but I think how, how we're set up now has as, as, um, you know, really set us up well for the future. Amazing. Um, yeah, that, so yeah, it, very interesting. Um, I, I, guess, uh, part, I guess this kind of has already been partly answered, but um, raising $5 million mm -hmm. uh, in your last round, that is a terrifyingly large amount of money for a lot of people in the room. Um, and everyone celebrates it, it's a great, exciting thing but I think it adds a lot of pressure and so many challenges and you know part of that is expanding overseas but are there any other like major challenges you guys have had like what what's been keeping you up at night since you've raised that money um, well I think probably one of the f one of the biggest changes and actually something that I'm not sure is a particularly popular opinion is we formed a board um, up until that point we had a very strong relationship with our investors, but it was 
you're slightly more relaxed. The regular cadence of board meetings, the structure that we have and having the right people in the room um, helped us bring our own focus. It helped us not get too kind of down in the weeds with our own strategy. And, it, and by going through that mechanism of producing a board pack and, and, and going through that process every quarter, it gives you a kind of complete outside view of the business from when you're used to usually being kind of sat you know, in the driving seat and only looking a certain way. So um, definitely there was a lot of change in you know, the structure of the company and, and how we were considered. It also puts you on a timeline, right? I think it's a forcing function in terms of, you know, investors invest in you because they want to return. Sure, they like you and they're interested in your product, but ultimately there's a, there's a financial gain that comes at the end of it. And you've got to know what you're getting into when you, when you do that. We felt with the kind of product we're building and the path that we're on that, that venture capital was the right tool for us to accelerate that growth and, and capitalize on our opportunity. Um, but in, you know, for a team that had been very kind of product oriented for a long time, it really helped bring some of the skills that we hadn't had prior to that to the table and actually drove us in, in the right direction. So largely, I think in the, you know, for us, it's been a, it's been a fantastic experience. Um, ask me again in a year's time and, and we'll see if I'm still saying the same thing. We'll have London sets going now. I <laughs> promise you, Rich. Um, I'm conscious I don't want to hog all the questioning, so I'm going to ask you one final question and we'll and we have more of a Q&A and you can fire. Nice questions, Rich. So one final one. What's next for Trey? What's next? Um, We'll be doing a lot of growth in our San Francisco office. So our, our engineering, engineering team here uh, is hiring and has a, a good steady beat to it. But you know, the majority of our go-to-market is happening over in San Francisco. So we'll be growing that team very quickly. Um, you know, the thing for us now is, is continuing to get out the, the good message of Trey, getting in front of the right customers, continuing to tell the right stories. We've got some really interesting product functionality coming out, which we hope to announce in the next kind of two to three months. But largely, it's about you know, really shifting our focus to, to stepping on the gas and, and getting out to market quicker. Fantastic. It's like you trained for this, Rich. Um, great. Uh, cool. Uh, we're now going to do a, a brief Q&A. I would normally kick off with, with a question myself, but we have one here. Uh, Rich, I have a question for you. Uh, it's about the onboarding stuff that uh, we're already talking about. Uh, so I'm checking my emails. So I have one from Dominic, like from 2016. <laughs> and it was actually the person who was onboarding me. And then I have emails from Chris as well, and emails from you. Good. So I'm just long time. So you're a customer, watching. surely. Uh, I'm watching. <laughs> you're, you're too expensive for us. Right? <laughs> I'm watching for you, for you for a long time. Yeah, the, you're pretty. You have a pretty cool product, actually. Yeah. Uh, but what I was I wanted to ask you. So how your uh, team is actually now restructured in order to onboard the customers? So is it Dominic or you are still sending? Uh, is at least is it from your name the customers are on being onboarded or from your growth scheme? Who is actually doing this all this stuff? Uh, Instead of you. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's changed a lot in the last probably six to eight months. Um, and, and largely, the structure of the team there in San Francisco has been behind that. Uh, we could do a whole other session on the kind of demand channels through to SDR process, through to you know, lead qualification and beyond. How it tends to happen now is um, dependent on the type of company that you are, means you go down certain tracks. And there are different people that get linked to you as, as, as we feel is relevant. So if you're a large enterprise customer, you get paired with a, a technical rep from the off and your hand is held in a very different way through that process. Um, we have a self-serve process, which is 
automated and delivers the right information at the right time, that's a much harder task for us with our kind of product because the kind of initial hump is a little bit larger. And that middle ground is there's a kind of guiding person there that figures out what it is you're trying to solve. And our mission, as kind of James was talking about with his own, is we want to get to the, you'll usually come in with a single pain point. We will try and solve that as quickly as yeah, we can. Connect, it to it. Right, whatever it is, let's get you connected, let's get you onboarded. And during that process, the product education comes in. So um, it largely depends on what you're charging. Um, uh, for us, our ACV is high enough that we can put, pay you with, with, a, with a person. If you're charging you know, 10 to $50 a month or something of that ilk, it needs to be kind of as streamlined as possible, which is how we had initially sort of started out and wasn't yeah. a very scalable but you know, model. you are going toward the elephants right now, I believe, right? Sure, we have a, we're certainly working typically with a larger customer. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and you know, it, it means that the sales process, we can afford to invest slightly further in. So you're kind of uh, stepping in, uh, outside of the Zapier, Zapier kind of just, uh, just uh, doing the hard enterprise stuff? Yeah, we're more, we're a, I guess a modern MuleSoft or a Tibco, right? If you, if you have a, you know, people do user provisioning on us or they do, um, they process you know, a billion records through Redshift and, and break them up and put them into another platform. So the, this is kind of a slightly different integration challenge to what exists at, at the SMB side of the market. Cool. Okay, cool, cool. I'm just conscious we haven't got too much time. So one more. We have one, one <laughs> right in the back. I got a question for Rich. Uh, so you've been between London and San Francisco quite a bit now, right? And um, we're kind of going back and forth as well. I was wondering what your experience is with I guess especially from the investor perspective, how they understood from the beginning on what you were doing. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, I think maybe that's enough. Yeah, I probably need to caveat this, otherwise I'll get in trouble with the London market. I think at the time that we initially were going out in 2012, 2013, it was a very different space. But the big difference for us is we're a very technically oriented team trying to solve a pretty technical challenge. And we found that investors in the US were able to kind of recognize how big that challenge was and how big the opportunity was in a very different way. And so largely they had been at products that perhaps looked like something very small when they started out but ended up being very big and were able to have a very different kind of foresight. Um, and I would say they were more sort of product-led in that way. We found the London market was much more about your initial traction and you know, what your forecast was going to lend you to be at a certain point, which may well have changed in the time since we kind of moved over. But for us, you know, there was generally a technical partner at any fund, and that meant that we had a much better opportunity at engaging them and getting them to understand you know, why this was tough and where it was heading. Cool. Thank you, Rich. Um, do that. Um. Okay, thanks for listening to uh, another episode of the Ghost Squad podcast. We hope you enjoyed this slightly different format th this time. Um, we will be back again soon, uh, I promise you, with many more great stories and uh, insights from various people involved in software uh, from around the world. And uh, as always, we'd love to have your feedback. So if you... Um, have any thoughts or questions or ideas for us, uh, please don't hesitate to let us know. Uh, you can always email us on hello at gosquared.com or you can tweet us at gosquared uh, or you can leave us a review on your podcast player of choice. Um, we always appreciate it. And uh, yeah, we hope you enjoyed the show and we'll catch you again soon. Thanks for listening. See you then. Bye. <laughs>